Hi, beautiful people. Welcome back to Insanova Podcast. I'm joined today by Lindy Knox, a professional clarinetist and teacher who has worked with the Symphony Tacoma, the Olympia Symphony Orchestra, the Oregon East Symphony, and the Yakima Symphony Orchestra. During our exchange, we will talk about life as a music teacher as well as their time as a student abroad. If you want more interviews like this, you can follow this podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and YouTube, among others. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Hello, uh, my name is Lindy Knox. I am a clarinetist and a clarinet teacher in the Seattle area. Um, I right now run a private studio of students, variety of ages from fifth, sixth grade beginners up through advanced adults. Uh, I also work at a couple colleges nearby and a couple youth orchestras and run kinder music classes for little, little kids um, as kind of like music education introduction. So I wear kind of a lot of different hats, but um, all surrounding mainly teaching and music. And then I freelance perform um, in the area as well. Um, I also have an adorable cat who might join us at some point. <laughs> um, his name's Maestro. And yeah, that's me. Okay. Um, okay. So um, why did you choose so the clarinet? Um, why did you choose the clarinet? Want um, that um, instrument? Yeah, I chose the clarinet because my mom had played it. <laughs> is the short answer. Um, I think I was in third or fourth grade, and I found her old clarinet in the closet. It was this old uh, LeBlanc that I got to play later, actually, um, and still have. But um, I was just obsessed with trying to figure out how to put it together and try to make sounds. And she found me doing that. I wasn't super happy because it hadn't been maintenance in years, so it actually was a little bit dirty and needed to be cleaned. <laughs> I couldn't get out of my head after that. Um, I was really into it. Then some of my friends were playing clarinet, so... Yeah, I was, I was convinced. I remember going to a music, like instrument selection night um, before going into fifth grade, which is about the age of my area that usually you can start school band. And they tried to get me to try all sorts of different instruments to see what I liked. And I tried a couple brass instruments and drastically failed at buzzing and then <laughs> told them I wanted to go play the clarinet and went over the clarinet table and rented a clarinet. So... <laughs> That's how that went. <laughs> you mentioned that you still have that clarinet. Do you still play with it um, sometimes? I haven't used it in a while, but I do still have it. It's a hard one to um, get rid of. It's sentimental value. But um, it would be a fantastic jazz clarinet if I played more jazz because um, it has a very bright sound. Um, it's an old wooden LeBlanc. And so, and unfortunately, the tuning isn't great, but... Again, if I ever joined a jazz band, it's got a great sound for that. But for classical, it's often a little too bright. So it's more sentimental value that it sits around. So you mentioned that you are a teacher. So you mentioned that you are what a teacher. Is your opinion, um, what is in your opinion on the current pedagogy used in most colleges and conservatories? I can answer from the perspective of where I was taught, because I think at least if we're talking clarinet pedagogy, it really does vary a lot school to school, depending on the culture and the teacher. Um, so my background is I went to a very small school in this area called Pacific Lutheran University. So my undergraduate teacher is Craig Ryan. Um, and then I went 
to a much bigger school in the Midwest, um, Ohio State University, and study with Dr. Caroline Hartig. Um, and kind of in between that, I when I was in my undergrad, I did a study abroad for a semester and studied with a couple teachers um, in Austria, um, in Vienna specifically. So that's kind of the perspective um, that I'm coming from. Um, but I will say, I guess some things that I really appreciated about my main teachers, all of them, was that they really approached each student individually. I never really had a teacher who was like, here's my curriculum, every student goes through it one size fits all. It was very much who's in front of me, um, what do you need, what are your goals, how am I gonna um, approach that? So I really appreciated that. Um, I will say especially um, Dr. Hartig is a stickler on technique um, and I so, so, so appreciate her for that. <laughs> um, I think I came in as a master's student and my first semester, I often tell my students I spent half my lessons playing G's and low G's and low E's um, and just really simple exercises, really reshaping my hand position. She really made me rethink concept of how my sound works. She was she is really has a good understanding of the body and how that relates to playing. Um, and so I really appreciated that. So yeah, I think that's what I can speak to is from, from where I'm from. Um, and I, I felt like I was really lucky with the teachers I had. Um, they were overall really positive. I still keep in touch and consider them great mentors, um, even the ones in Vienna, although I don't keep in touch with them as enough, um, but um, every now and then I still do. And when I've been had the opportunity to go back and visit, I've always been able to go back and visit with them again. So um, yeah, that is, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but from my perspective, <laughs> those are some things I appreciate about the pedagogies of my teachers, at least. Mm-hmm. So... so- what was, what was one, one um, musician, musician culture shock, shock that you experienced when uh, you went to Vienna? Yeah, I was sitting with this one. Um, I think the only culture shocks I would say I would have musically was on the positive side. So I hope that counts. <laughs> um, I just remember being shocked in the best way at how the whole city so embraced music it was so a thread of the culture um musicians were so highly respected um and looked upon yeah just with such high honor um it seemed like everybody would go to some musical event be it the symphony or the opera or whatever else was going on in the city there's always tons of stuff um and it just seemed so much more the heart of the city um, versus around here. Of course, we have some wonderful music culture, but it's often, often orchestras are fighting to get patrons that aren't their regulars, you know? They're fighting to reach um, people that don't normally go to the symphony. Um, There's often a lot of barriers to get in. um, And often people, I think, perceive it as stuffy or not for them. And yeah, so it just, it seemed, that culturally seemed very different. just the respect um and by that coin the the level of playing is just extraordinary um and i mentioned just the amount of events constantly going on is also extraordinary um i would usually spend my time on 
Sundays, um, planning out all the concerts I wanted to go for the week. <laughs> um, and it would keep me on top of my homework because I wanted to get my homework done so I could go to all the concerts. And so I could see the opera when that opera was there because they would change almost every week. And I wanted to see the symphony when they were there. And oh, the soloist is coming in, so I want to see them too. And so it's just the plethora of options um, that really accessible as well um, is there because they have the, the standing room, um, which of course... Uh, you must, you know, pretty much must be able-bodied to do, but thankfully I was able to do that. And um, that was really inexpensive and um, a wonderful option as a college student. Um, so really loved that. How different um, how different Yeah. So my perspective there... I guess to, to give some context, was I traveled with a program called IES Abroad. <clears throat> so um, it was an exchange program. So I was traveling with um, other Americans um, when we were kind of put in a school taught by mainly Europeans. Um, but um, we were kind of all a core group of Americans studying together. Um, so my that was kind of the school I was at. It wasn't necessarily a Viennese school, but it, there was definitely um, a lot of teachers that were from the area. Um, majority of the teachers were from somewhere in Europe. Um, but my main clarinet teacher there was Anthony Olveris, who actually was also from America. He's got American-Austrian. So that was interesting because he had the perspective. He understood where I came from. His studies were in America, but then he'd also done some studies in Austria and lived there for quite a period of time. So... That was quite interesting, um, studying with him. Um, other teachers I worked with there um, were came from more full Austrian perspective. So that was also um, cool to experience as well. Um, and one of the biggest differences being that my lessons with Anthony were mainly in English and my other lessons with um, teachers from the conservatory and whatnot that I took a handful from were all in German, um, which I was pretty proficient in, but definitely was my first time ever taking musical lessons in German. So that was a good challenge. Um, but anyway, I will say, I think one of the biggest things I noticed difference in terms of private study, at least for clarinet, was there was a lot more, rather than verbal instruction, a lot more playing back and forth. Um, and I think a lot more emphasis on the ear because of that. So it was much more common for um, teachers to, that I, at least that I worked with, to, I would play something and rather than them saying anything, they'd pick up their clarinet and play it back and they wouldn't say anything and I'd play it again and it would turn into kind of almost this duel of back and forth <laughs> um, and just listening for what are they doing differently and what are they offering to me non-verbally, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and that's different than most of my teachers I'd experienced um, here in the States. Um, many of them would play examples for me, but often I think there's a more reliance on verbally explaining things and verbally discussing sound concepts. Um, so yeah, I think that was interesting. Um, I think that was the biggest pedagogy difference just in terms of style of teaching uh, that I saw over there. Um, of course, I witnessed the conservatory system, but I was not in it. So um, I got to observe a couple of conservatory lessons, which I think also just structure wise was different. Um, they would have here in America, at least in my 
training. Uh, most of the time it was students with teacher. When the lesson's over, student leaves office, another student comes in, maybe you overlap for a minute. And the difference there was students would just kind of be coming in throughout lesson, politely, of course, quietly. Um, and oftentimes the teacher would like call them up and then they'd start all playing together. Um, and it almost was more like half individual, half group lesson. And so it created this real cool culture of the studio where it didn't feel competitive. It felt like they were really all working together and they were getting to see what others were working on in lessons um, really directly. Um, so that was kind of interesting as well um, and different than what I was used to. So as someone who studied overseas, so, as how, someone did who adapt, studied overseas um, how did you, you know, adapt a new um, country and culture? And do you have any tips for someone who considers to study abroad? Yeah. Mm. I love that question because I, if you have the chance, I understand it's a huge privilege. Um, it's just such an incredible opportunity. I feel so lucky that I was able to go abroad. It really sounds so cliche, but opened my eyes in so many ways um, to different culture, to so much music, um, to, yeah, some friends that I still get to keep in touch with and, you know, people in another country I can go visit now. Um but yeah, adapting. Um, I will say, I mean, I think it might sound somewhat obvious, but the, one of the most helpful things is just understanding the language as much as you can, <laughs> um, which um, I don't think is a necessity, but definitely makes it easier. Um, so I came in to my studies in Vienna having a couple years in high school um, and I think two and a half years in college. So I'm not saying I was fluent in German by any means, but I was proficient enough in my time there. I um, really was able to get to a good conversational level um, where I could take lessons in German and keep up and occasionally have to ask for a word here or there, but um, was able to understand. Um, and that was just a huge advantage um, because like I said, I was able to go study with teachers who most people there, of course, speak great English, but a lot of them I was able to go do things like at the conservatory where when they're teaching other students, they're not going to be speaking in English. Maybe if they were taking, teaching me, they'd adapt to English, but, um, and be able to keep up with what was going on. And a lot of my colleagues there just didn't have that because they had come and were taking their first semester German ever. Um, so, I mean, if you can, there's tons of apps out there. I mean, they're hit or miss, but it's something or find a language buddy or find a class and absorb as much of the language as you can. Um, and then I think just be as open as you can. Um, and I would say try to take in the culture and the norms as much as you can. Um, I think that was something I tried to do. I don't know. There might, I'm sure there were times I was not successful at it, but I think I was just very curious and open and, um, how is this done? How is this done? Okay, I'm going to try and imitate that. Um, and I think as musicians, we're maybe uniquely um, prepared for that because we do that in ensembles all the time, right? We're adapting to different conductors, we're adapting to different um, players around us, um, we're adapting to different teachers even. So yeah, just remaining curious and open and learning the language as best you can. Um, I feel like there was another part of your question I skipped, but... That was the advice part. <laughs> what are the main um, um, things to master so your what are the main, in order um, to have a fulfilling life as a musician? It could be about um, our instruments or um, about like the business side of it. 
That's a great question. Yeah, there's so many ways you could take this question. Um, but I think one of the things that I think is translatable to playing or business or anything you're doing is really getting to know yourself and how you learn. Um, learn how you learn. That sounds very redundant, but I think that's so, so important. Um, and I think sometimes in our school systems, it's kind of like, what's the best word? It gets very repetitive and everyone gets to be kind of cogs in a machine, unfortunately, sometimes. And sometimes it's assumed, you know, we all do the same things. And I know at least in my studies, um, just throughout like uh, K-12 school, a lot of it was, here's how to study, here's how to do this. And it was very like kind of one way. Um, and then once you get beyond that, I feel like you're finally encouraged to, okay, figure out and pick which one's best for you. We're going to offer some, but figure it out. And then really, I feel like after I got out of college, college and grad school was when I was really able to tune into that. And specifically, if we're looking at like practice, like what helps me learn music the best in my in my practice. Um, and it might look totally different than somebody else. Um, I, through encouragement from teachers, you know, learned how long I can really focus for and what are the things that I really need to focus on. Um, and then again, that translates out of the practice room. So in terms of business, you know, I feel like I've learned and still learning, but I've learned these things work for me these things do not. Um, I've done a handful of um, programs and coachings, especially specifically for business stuff, um, which has been really helpful. And I've learned for myself, I do a lot better in a system that has some sort of personal um, group coaching or one-on-one -on -one or touch points um, versus a program that's totally asynchronous and you just like... Um, watch videos and learn. And I think that's really valuable to know because now I know when I'm looking at doing whatever sort of program for whatever I want to learn, that's kind of what I look for. Um, or if I'm going to do something that's asynchronous, maybe I want to find somebody to do it with me um, because that will help motivate me. Um, and some people might be the opposite and I don't think either is better or worse, but I think it's that's a superpower if you can figure out what, how you learn what you need to do best. Um, so yeah, figure yourself out, learn how you learn. You don't have to wait till you're out of school to do that. Um, really explore when you're in school, take what your teachers give you, and of course, try on what they give you. Um, sometimes you get a lot of different perspectives, and I say try it all on, and then keep what you want and leave what you don't. <laughs> um, and yeah, just figure it out for yourself what works best. What were these programs? Mm. Yeah, so I guess I have done two business, business programs. Um, Uh, when I've been out of school, because I think that's something that's severely lacking in our schools, um, is teaching us how to have a real career once we get out, um, especially in today's world, which is not the same as it was 30, 40 years ago um, at all. So um, I did Nicole Ricardo's Create Your Career, great program for any um, in school or out of school, um, people looking to do entrepreneurship. Um, I've seen people in that class go do all sorts of things. So I was kind of coming it from the perspective of had I really wanted some help marketing, website building, 
building my studio the way I wanted it to. Um, so that's kind of what I did with that. But I've seen other people do go on to create really awesome digital programs, um, create photography businesses or whatnot. So it's cut, it's about for creatives. Um, but she's awesome. So you can go check her out. Um, and then more recently I did, um, a more specific studio building program, um, from Kelly Reardon, um, outside the box, um, which is really, really fantastic. Um, and she really helped me to restructure some things in my studio policy wise, um, especially, and, um, find, ways to recruit new students that actually work um, and uh, really are organic and uh, true to myself and not salesy and markety and posting um, on things that never really worked or felt right to me. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was really helpful in that regard. So those are the two that I've done um, outside of school. Um, I definitely encourage people to look into those or others like them in school or out of school, um, they often have really great financing plans to make them more achievable. I know Kelly actually recently came up with a smaller version of her program that's a lot less expensive. So that's an awesome program to check out. It's specifically, I think, for students or just out of school students um, looking to start their studios. Um, and it's at a much more affordable price point. So um, it could be a great option for people. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about studios. Um, Talk about what was the defining moment for you? What was the defining moment for you? Mm. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> I feel like I am learning as a teacher every day. Um, so it's it's interesting to to look. It's always interesting to look back on. I've been, I guess, more full time or working towards full time teaching. Um, which that means different hours for different people. I don't teach 40 hours a week, but working on my studio more full-time, I guess is my definition of that. Um, for about three years now. Um, and it's always funny that each year I think I look back, I feel like I'm a totally different teacher. Um, and I'm pretty sure that will continue. And that's, I'm totally okay with that because I think the beauty of teaching is learning as you go and adapting and getting better. Um case though but one defining moment I think I guess I'll just sing the praises of one of my <laughs> one of my students I think I had a student recently who I'd worked with for yeah about three years um one of my they were my very first college student so will always hold a special place in my heart um and um, we started together during the pandemic in Zoom online for an entire year before we were able to meet in person. And then we did meet in person. We were 20 feet apart on a stage. And so they just put up with all of that. <laughs> um, but anyway, this past November or December, they gave um, a recital um, for completion of the program was for an AA degree. So kind of a introductory. It's like a first college degree, um, an associate's degree before they go on to get their master's. Um, and yeah, that was just really, really cool. It was a really good learning, a lot of learning moments for me as a teacher um, in prepping a student for a recital because that was a first for me. Um, and there are things that I have learned that I will take with me next time. And I'm sure that I will learn for the next time as well. Um, but everything from, yeah, just picking the right music for them um, to really, how do I make them really prepared for that day? And it's interesting 
because there I know how that feels to be in that, but it definitely feels different <laughs> to be the teacher. So how much encouragement do I need to give? When do I back off on the criticism and just hype you up <laughs> so you feel really confident? Um, how many run-throughs do I make you do? Um, just all of the sorts of logistical things of how do I shape this to really set them up best? Um, so yeah, and then it was just a really proud moment um, watching them perform um, on stage. They did a really fantastic job and performed a really hard program, which is also something I've learned maybe to balance out my programs a little better, but they really excelled at it and did a great job. Um, so that was really a special moment. How do you actually so prepare for um, how an addition? An addition, okay. Yeah. So I haven't taken a ton of additions, um, professional additions, that is. I've definitely done, you know, um, school additions and whatnot. But um, I, I think I'm still learning my process. But again, I think harping back to what I said, learn how you learn um, is really important also in prepping for an addition. So no, yeah what's going to work for you, how, how you're going to absorb the material best. Um, but you know, I guess to get down nitty gritty, you know, ideally I'd like six to eight weeks at least before an addition, if possible, um, to prep. So, um, you know, whenever that timeline is that I first get the music, want to look over the excerpt list. Are there any that I'm unfamiliar with? That's probably where I'm going to start. You know, so I kind of, I think, start by making priorities. Um, you know, if it's Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart, of course, I'm going to spend time on those, but I feel more comfortable that I'm like, okay, familiar with these. Um, if it's an excerpt I have a lot less familiarity with, my first step is probably going to be um, to do a lot of listening and score study um, and checking out... Um, big fan of the working clarinetist book, um, checking out any notes in there, if it's in there. Um, but yeah, then once I get into practicing again, it's about priority. Um, so I want to be practicing all the excerpts, but I want to get specific on what I need to be practicing. So if we're still looking like six weeks out, um, for something like Mozart, I'm going to be just slowing things down a lot and working through all those runs um, in different ways, um, just really getting the fingers clean and even, probably working technically on my starts to notes, um, things like that. I'm also a big fan, this is kind of a, just a practice technique, but especially in prepping for an edition or recital and making my fundamentals kind of reflect what I need to work on in the excerpts because that also helps you save time. So if I've got Beethoven 8 on an edition excerpt, then probably somewhere in my fundamental session, I'm going to be working at my altissimo um, and maybe even altissimo tonguing. Um, so that way, when I get to that excerpt, I can focus more on the music and hopefully a little less on the technique because I've already worked on it. So that's, I think, really, really beneficial. Um, I use a planner. Um, more, most recently, I've been using... Uh, DCA's Digital Clarinet Academy's planner. Um, so that helps me stay on track. I set goals for the week um, and then identify what needs to be done that day. And yeah, then once we get closer to the edition, um, I think playing for as many people as possible is really important for people that you trust. Um, so maybe not as many people as possible, but play for at least a good amount of people that you trust to give you good musical critique. Um, 
that's going to help you. Um, so my partner generally has to listen to me play a lot. <laughs> um, so I call him in all the time and say, hey, listen to this. What do you think of this? I want you to listen for this. Um, and it's nice because he's not a clarinetist. So sometimes he offers um, different opinions that are good. Um, or I will call up my undergraduate teacher who's pretty close by um, and play my excerpts for him um, or some friends that I have nearby um, or hop on Zoom <laughs> and with another teacher is an option as well nowadays. Um, so as we're getting closer, probably like at least if starting a few weeks out, I would do that um, and then take what they say, continue to work on that. Um, and then, yeah, I would say as it gets closer, I think of, I grew up as an athlete, so I kind of think of almost like deceleration training as you get closer to the addition. Um, so that last week, um, I don't want to be burning myself out, great practicing as many hours a day, cranking out the excerpts. Most of the work is done by that point. I want to be hitting, hitting little details and doing a few run-throughs and then day of just doing a short fundamental session, trying not to overplay, picking a good read or a couple of reads, you know, maybe touching a couple things slowly. I generally don't like to play things at full speed um, on a performance day. It generally just psychs me out. Um, and again, you're not going to gain any speed or technique that day. It's already done. Um, so probably just playing through things slowly. That helps calm me down. And yeah, um, I was somewhat long-winded, but hopefully some good tidbits in there. Again, it's something that I think I am definitely still very much learning um, since it's um, a new process to me. So I feel like I'm adapting and changing at each one <laughs> that I take. You just said that you are as an athlete. athlete. Mm -hmm. How, did, How did, you... did it maybe help you as a musician with like maybe discipline or something else? Yeah, super interesting. I think definitely helps with discipline. Um, discipline, endurance, um, perseverance, those are big things. Um, good teamwork, I think as well. I grew up on teams my whole life, you know, and you learn how to support each other um, and encourage each other and you can't win without each other. Even things like, I did a variety of sports, but uh, for a good chunk of my life, I, I did some individual team sports like um, running and swimming, but even those you still win as a team, even though you compete individually. Um, so I think that's a really good um, lesson um, as a musician as well, because so much of, the, of what we do is also part of a team. It's sometimes ironic because we, there's so much competition often, um, which I sometimes have issue with, but um, really, we play in ensembles and we're a team and we're not fighting against each other. And if you are, it's not making great music, right? The best ensembles are really um, working together. There's a lot of respect and love for each other. Um, and that's what it is. But yeah, I think by the, I started music also at a young age. I started with piano when I was five. Um, so I was kind of doing them simultaneously. But I definitely think the lessons in athletics of you just keep going, you know, you don't give up, um, you work together, all of that um, translates over well to music as well. How do you deal with like competition? How do you deal with like competition? competition? You know, so back then. Yeah, well, I will be the first to admit when I was a student, I 
definitely got into the the competition. Um, I was, especially in middle school, high school, I was the clarinet who was constantly challenging for first chair if I wasn't sitting first chair. I always wanted to be in that spot. Um, I, it, that was like the most important thing to me. So I very much um, was into the competition, which I think in some ways pushed me to practice and be better, but I think it was not the right type of fuel. It's not the type of fuel that I would like to give my students. Um, so I think as I got older, um, I learned that that wasn't helping me, uh, that I was more focused, you know, which I think a lot of us can relate to. Um, I wasn't able to like listen to my colleagues and appreciate what they were doing because I was constantly um, nitpicking if I could do it better or trying to find what they were doing wrong to make myself feel better. And I won't lie, it didn't happen overnight that I got out of that. Um, it was a long process, but I think a lot of it was finally once I got to grad school, um, one thing I really respect about Dr. Hardig and the way she ran her studio was really trying to not foster a competitive vibe in that way. Um, and I think I just kind of had an awakening or awareness of, I need to be able to listen and learn from these people around me because there's so much to learn from them whether they're younger than me or older than me um because there was a variety of both I was kind of in the middle as a master's student um and yeah it was challenging at first but once I was able to start doing that I felt like I gained so much more and now I won't say competition doesn't still come up but I have much more fruitful musical experiences when I go into something and I don't approach it from a I'm trying to be better than the person next to me, but how can I work with the person next to me? It's just, it's more fun <laughs> um, is, is the bottom line of it. It's more enjoyable. Um, I feel like I play better because I'm not kind of on edge. Um, I feel like I'm trying to be competitive. I'm a little on edge. Um, and yeah, I don't do competitive athletics anymore. I haven't since high school, but um, it's a movement is still a huge part of my life. And so I think trying to get that competitive side of me out elsewhere um, is also helpful. Um, so that's what I try to do now. How does um, recording the stopped. help you okay. understand I'm gonna more send you, about um, the second thing? Okay. Mm. Yeah, I think um, playing another instrument is um, super valuable. I definitely don't consider myself a pianist <laughs> anymore. Um, I can handle some simple tunes but I think growing up playing piano and basically I took it very seriously um when I played it I started about age five and I played pretty seriously until I was about 15 um at which point I was just getting really into clarinet and my parents were kind of like we're not gonna pay for lessons on both so one or the other and I chose clarinet um Mostly because at that point I was really into band and a lot of my friends were in band and I really wanted to excel in band. Um, and I still loved the piano and I still do, but it was so much more solitary um, that I really wanted to focus on clarinet because I loved being with others. But I think it's really gives you a lot of insight um, playing a different instrument. It was a huge asset um, going into school and band, being able to read music really fluently in both clefs and be really familiar with not only the notation, but dynamics and just markings and whatnot. A lot of that was very familiar to me. So that is great. Um, and I think it also just gives you a different perspective. Um, 
it allows you to hear things in a different way. I mean, one of the biggest differences, of course, with piano is that you're playing uh, so much more of the lines. You know, you have all the notes. You can play the chords versus clarinet, aside from, you know, some extended technique and harmonics. We play one note, one line at a time. Um, And so I think that perspective of maybe kind of a more fullness in the music that you get with piano um, is really useful. Um, And just, of course, pedagogy and teaching um, differs a little bit, but I think growing up with that structure and lessons and piano and a lot of the lessons that I learned and how to practice. Honestly, the way I teach hand position a lot harks back to how I was taught hand position on piano. Of course, it's slightly different, but the the C curve that we aim for on piano translates really well to clarinet um, as well. So there's even some technique that, that transfers over. But yeah, I think it's a really valuable thing. And I love it when students come in um, having played piano um, because it. I think, again, then generally at least that reading um, and that music literature fluency is at a lot higher level, even if they're a young clarinet student. So that's just really, um, we don't spend time on that as much in lessons, which just is, is a, allows them to focus on other things. If there's one thing that um, you if could change in the practice that, room, um, what would you it could be? Change in- mm, this is a great question. Um, yes. I think if there's one thing I could change, it would be, um, this is um, something influenced from Chelsea Tanner, especially I'll call her out. Um, I've done some coaching with her. She's awesome. Um, But it is painting things so black and white um, and probably the words good and bad um, because often what we do is we play something and we say, oh, that was bad. And we start beating ourselves up about it. And we do that because I think a lot of our culture teaches us to be really hard on ourselves and that's how we improve. And I think there's good intentions behind that message, but often what happens is we just start beating ourselves up and then we probably, likely, this is what I've done a lot of times, end up in a cycle of just repeating it over and over until it's quote unquote good or better. But what we're missing, I think, is really the what are we actually trying to change? And when we label something as bad, I think we really cut off a lot of that learning possibility Um, because who wants to, you know, as soon as something is bad, like if somebody tells you you did something bad, are you going to want to really responsibly listen to them and like um, have, be really open to what they have to say? Or are you going to be sitting there kind of beating yourself up. Uh, for most of us, I think it's the second. So I really wish we could um, change that in the practice room. And that's something I've really actively worked on trying to and continue to work on trying to change for myself um, is using more neutral language and being more specific. Uh, so I still, of course, get myself playing something and say, I didn't like that. It was bad. But I try and stop myself and say, okay, what am I labeling bad about it? Um, what, what is it that didn't go the way I wanted it to? Was it the rhythm? Was it the, you know, maybe it's something I just played a wrong note. Okay, then that's a pretty simple neutral. That note did not match the page. <laughs> Let's fix that. Um, maybe it's something more nuanced, like the way I did a crescendo or um, the, sh- the phrasing um, that I want to change. But if I can get more specific, now there's a learning opportunity. And when I repeat it again, 
I have something to listen for. Um, so there's more chance of success. <laughs> and um, okay, this is what I'm focusing on. Um, did I achieve this or not? If not, what can I do different? And that just feels much more constructive, um, again, than in hitting, hitting the rabbit hole of repetition. <laughs> um, so yeah, getting rid of good and bad and practice through. That's my number one thing. What was like the worst advice that um, another musician or maybe like a teacher gave you? That mm -hmm. Yes. So something that I didn't realize how damaging was at the time. And I think like a lot of what we might qualify as bad advice, I can see the good intention behind it, but I'll explain how I think it was really damaging to me and probably to others. Um, was I was told more than once um, that if you're not practicing, somebody else is. And basically the underlying message of that is that we should always be working, we should always be practicing. It's really fueling that comp competition that somebody else is working harder than you, so they're gonna get the job and you're not. Um, it feeds into this cultural norm that we shouldn't be doing anything else. We shouldn't have any other interests or hobbies. We should be dedicating 100% of our time to music, which is unrealistic because we're human. And I actually think that's another tangent, but um, those other interests can really feed um, our music. But anyway, um, yeah, I was told that, like I said, multiple times from a really young age. And for me, what it really led to was I took that very seriously and I was like, okay, I need to be grinding and practicing as much as possible um, because I want to be as good as I can because I care. This was from a teacher that I respected, so they know what they're talking about um, and that's what I need to do. So what that led to was a lot of stress, <laughs> um, tears in the practice room, you know, just a lot of unhappiness um, around practicing for a while I still did it I still am grateful I feel like I never really lost that love for clarinet um deep down but there was times when it really was a struggle um and beyond that I also developed some pretty significant overuse injuries um which I still have to be cautious of today thankfully I've learned preventative and be um um be able to work through those and still play um but there was a time when it was pretty debilitating and I completely ignored it um, to a large extent because, um, again, I was taught that it was just, if I stopped practicing, it was over. <laughs> um, so I just, I, I didn't, even even when I was in pain, even when, you know, there was a lot of red flags my body was sending me. Um, so yeah, I, again, I know the intent from this teacher was to motivate us to work hard and um, to really dedicate but I think there's a lot of harm that can come from that message. Um, and for me, I know it definitely did. And it's something that um, I didn't realize again how damaging it was until honestly, a few years ago, <laughs> I've been in therapy for a few years um, and my current therapist, she's awesome. And the amount of time she's brought that back up to me, I would, and ha I've had to be like, oh, was that a bad thing I was taught? She's like, yes, this is, you shouldn't have been told this. And I was like, oh. And really, like, it took several times hearing it to realize that it was even damaging. Because <laughs> um, I was just like, no, that's okay. No, this is not healthy. Um, so, yeah, I think that 
I think that that's that's the worst. I think other than that, like I said, I was really lucky to have. Thankfully, I never had a really toxic teacher, so it wasn't like I was constantly getting a slew of um, things. But that was just something that I think was specifically said by one teacher, but was really um, kind of permeated through a lot of teaching because I think that's just society and culture of music. About like um, culture about in like, music and um, like. The School Culture of Thought. Music and um, like the school of what do you think about um, the ageism in our industry? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's something that I have as much to say on, to be honest, but it may be something I should um, dive a little deeper into. Um, I... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not totally sure how to respond. Um, definitely, I think there's, of course, a divide um, that we see where there's can be a lot of pressure to go through all these years of school and do as many competitions as you can and do all these things really young, which can be often really inaccessible to a lot of people for a variety of reasons. Um, I was immensely privileged to get to do all the schooling I did and traveling and whatnot. Um, but at the same time, I did not have the privilege that some others had to go do a bunch of fancy music festivals and competitions um, in the summers, just because they're really, really obscenely expensive. <laughs> and it wasn't something we could afford. Um, so I think that, I guess, on the young side can be an issue that there's so much pressure to to do it all when you're young. And there's a little bit of a stereotype that if you don't hit success by a certain age you're done which is also ironic though because you look around at the orchestras and there's such a divide and a lot of orchestras are dominated by a lot older people um and still often prevalently a lot older men especially white men um slightly changing but that's still unfortunately a lot the case um so i think there's definitely there's an issue there <laughs> with the gap of um, really pushing young people to do all of these things um, by this quote-unquote certain age, which is silly um, and doesn't really matter at all. Um, but also, and get, you know, maybe an orchestra job by a certain age, but also you look into the orchestras and there's not a lot of those 25-year-olds um, sitting in the seats occasionally, but a lot of times it takes longer than that. So yeah, I guess my thoughts on that are just... Um, just that, that it's, there's definitely a divide um, and a lot of pressure, um, which I don't think really makes any sense. Uh, yeah. Um, going back to like practicing yeah. um, and going back concerts, to like... how do you deal with stage fright and how do you approach it as a teacher? Yeah, um, I think all of us deal with stage fright to some degree um and then of course it can get to the more serious level for some people as um performance anxiety which is of course a different can of worms um but yeah I mean I've definitely dealt with stage fright dealt with nerves um and I think one of the short answers is um and this isn't everything, but part of it is I definitely think the more prepared you are, 
the easier it gets. Um, it's not everything, but I think it's a big chunk of it. Um, if you're really well prepared, even when you get nervous, like those fingers, those muscles, everything you've trained are still there. <laughs> if you're a little underprepared and you get nervous, I feel like that's often more when, when things go a little more awry. Um, so really good preparation is something I encourage in my students. But I think beyond that, also preparation of trying to imagine doing a little more mental and visualization. This is something I got from sport, especially when I um, ran track. We used to, um, on our way to meets, visualize your meet and visualize how you want everything to go from how you want to walk out, how you want to warm up, how you want to walk out onto the blocks, how you like what you're thinking when you get into starting position, like how it feels to take off, you know, visualizing all these things. Um, I think that's really helpful for us as musicians as well. Um, if it's a recital, how are you going to, what are you going to do for your warm up? How early are you going to get there? Um, are you going to tune when you go on stage? How does it feel to walk on stage? You know, are you taking a bow? Um, what does it feel like to play your first note? What does it feel like to play your last note? You know, if we can do that, it kind of gets our brain in the sensation of performing. So I think it helps performing not be this scary other thing. Like here's the practice room, here's performing. It starts to bridge that gap a little more. Um, so I think that can be really helpful. Um, in terms of playing for others, I think something, be that for recital and addition, um, concert, whatever it is, um, something I try and remind myself a lot and also remind my students that no matter who is listening to you, even if it's an audition panel, um, they want you to do your best. If it's an audience member, they came to hear good music. They want to hear good music. Even if it's an audition committee, they want to get a good person. So they want you to do well <laughs> and do well and play well. And um, I think often we think that they're wishing the worst on us. And I really don't think that's the case. I think getting into that mindset can be helpful as well. And just, so that's something I remind students often is that, um, hey, those listening to you, they just wanna hear you play well. They're rooting you on um, the mistakes that you make, because um, inevitably we all make mistakes, you know, are gonna be a lot more obvious to us than them. Um, you know, you do your best to just move on. That's also something we work on in preparation, right? But yeah, I think, I think being really prepared um, visualizing your performance space as much as you can, um, and remembering that everyone out there wants to hear you do well and is rooting for you as well is probably what I kind of hark to. What is your processes from rehearsal to what is performance? Your rehearsal to performance. Okay. Yeah. So I guess if we're talking more in like a group setting, um, some of this will overlap with what I said about how we prepare for an audition. Um, but yeah, if I'm playing in an orchestra, you know, however long I've had the music beforehand, I um, am of course practicing the tricky spots on my own and working through stuff. I'm also listening a lot, doing a lot of store study. I make a lot of notes in my part of what I'm gonna hear, especially if it's a piece I'm unfamiliar with um, or haven't played with an orchestra before, even if I'm familiar with, but I haven't played it in the orchestra before. Um, I try to make it feel as much like I have <laughs> possible. So I think the way I found that's most helpful with that is doing a lot of listening and score study and making notes in my part. Like I know I'm gonna hear flute here. I know I play with oboe here. I know the trombone does this here. Um, 
So again, it's kind of that same thing as the visualization. When I get into that first rehearsal, it's not as foreign. Um, I know what to expect. Um, and then in performance, in the rehearsal, um, again, trying to not, to get out of that competitive mind, trying to just be open to what the conductor's saying, what the, you know, if I'm playing in the section, what the principal's saying, you know, maybe what other sections are saying, um, or not saying, just responding to them musically, um, just trying to, I think that first rehearsal, I'm really just trying to like absorb it all. <laughs> um, and where do I fit in and what do I need to adjust? And then of course, making notes also of, oh, I need to practice this more, or this is faster than I thought, or this is that. And then going home and working on that. And then, you know, the next rehearsal is trying to change that. And then by the performance, um, again, just trying to get into the mindset of, you do this once, this, you know, um, enjoy it while it's here, really soak it up. Of course, stay focused, but um, I think I try and get to the mindset of, of enjoyment as much as possible. Um, and how cool is this that I get to go do this? And that's not ignoring my feelings of nerves, but that will help. That helps me um, not focus on the, again, that what is everybody thinking? Are they judging me? Will I get called back? All of those sort of things and more focusing on the music and um, the experience. I read that um, you did a lot so of masterclasses. I read that um, I was wondering how do you prepare before like going to a masterclass? Yeah, I've done a good amount. Um, I think I one of the things that was kind of a unique opportunity I got in grad school was that my professor took a sabbatical for a semester um, and it was kind of unique. It was kind of a, I think not the traditional way this is done. Typically um, a visiting professor would just step in for that semester. I don't totally know why that didn't happen, but instead what happened is we had a series, a series of visiting <laughs> teachers. So um, it was a really unique opportunity. We got to work with a ton of different clarinetists. Um, and so she just had people come in for a week or two. Um, so I got to work with Elsa Verdeer and Reinhard Wieser um, and some of her former students and just, yeah, I know I'm missing other names, but there was a lot of really, really great. Um, Frank Cohen was another one um, who came in. Um, so that, that's where a lot of those masterclasses came from, um, which was really fantastic. Um, I don't know if I'd say I prepare for a masterclass any different than any other performance, except for maybe just being ready, being open to what the teacher in front of me or masterclass leader is going to offer. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. Oftentimes in a masterclass, it's not your teacher. It's somebody different. Um, and so I think the perspective I try to go in with is I'm going to try and take everything they give me on. Um, often, you know, they'll ask you to play something again. I'm going to try it, you know, to my fullest potential. Um, and if I hate it and it doesn't work, then later on, I can ditch it, but I think my perspective is in that moment, I'm going to really try and embrace it, even if I don't necessarily agree with it, or if it's something completely new that I'm like, I don't know if I like that. I'm going to really try it on. And then usually I'm going to try that on after two in the practice room, because it's, of course, a different experience up there in the five minutes, you know, usually in front of your colleagues. Um, but yeah, I would say just be, being open to that is probably the only difference um, between that and preparing for anything else, because um, you don't know what they're going to offer. You don't know sometimes how much you're going to play. Um, sometimes they have you play all the way through it. Sometimes they stop you. Um, 
sometimes they ask you to play a lot again, sometimes they don't. So it's, I think it's just being open to um, whatever they may offer and say. You talked about um, injuries When you have an injury, how do you practice if you still can practice? And of course, like we need to rest, but if you want to practice, how, how do you do it? Yeah, I guess I would say first and foremost, listen to your doctor um, and what they have to say yeah. Um, yeah. and how they offer you to practice. Um, but also, you know, really advocate for yourself. On that point, I would say advocate for yourself as a doctor too and say, hey, here's what I do and here's what it looks like. Um, I know this is something PAMA, the Performing Arts Medicine Association, is trying to change the tide on, but I've encountered a lot of doctors who I don't think understand the demands of what we do. Um, so sometimes it even bringing your instrument and saying, hey, this is the motions I do. Like, is this okay? Or what can you do to help me? Um, so listen to them first and foremost. Um, like I think I mentioned, I was really lucky that when I did get injured, I never was forced to stop playing, um, especially for any extended period of time. Um, the injuries I had related from very common clarinet injuries, um, some tendonitis in my wrist, um, and especially um, spring all the way up to my right thumb from how I was holding the clarinet and, again, overuse, just playing too many hours back to back. So my biggest changes during that time, which I still carry on, is just not playing too long um, in any period of time. And so generally in practice, I don't generally, the longest I'll generally practice in one stretch is like 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and if I have to practice more, or of course in a rehearsal when it's longer, um, just like even little things like, um, I went to PT for a while for my hands and just little things like getting the blood flowing. So in a break, in a practice break or in a rehearsal break, just like like dropping my hands, letting them stretch out. So they're just not held in that position was really important for me. Stretching um, before and after playing um, was something that's really critical. And I didn't do enough before, but something I still do now. Um, also strengthening. That was something I couldn't really do so much at that time, you know, again, follow your doctor's advice on this, but oftentimes when you're injured, you know, you have to kind of just rehabilitate and strengthen. You might be a part of that, but sometimes we have to, you know, heal things before we can strengthen. But I think one of the reasons now I've been a lot better with not having those injuries occur, aside from being careful about my practice time, is um, really taking care of my body and strengthening things like my shoulders so that my wrist doesn't take so much of the weight um from lifting the clarinet from the right place um so stretching strengthening um I guess if you absolutely can't play um some things you can do are get creative there's other ways um to practice listen to your music score study um if you can still move your hands you know you can finger along or you can do some breathing exercises um, all of that's still beneficial to your um, clarinet playing and your musical abilities. Um, I think often we get caught up in the only practicing is sitting there blowing notes to the horn. I don't think that's necessarily true. So I think there's, there's ways to do that to still stay connected, even if you can't physically play. Um, one book that I just got at Clarinet Fest, um, what's the author? Uh, Mary Alice Dun Durham, I think it's Durham. Um, the one-handed clarinetist, um, she wrote this book because she had a really debilitating injury for years and 
um, could only play with one hand and there was nothing out there to do that. Uh, sorry, my cat is joining us. Um, so that's a great resource as well. Um, if it's one of your hands that you can't use, um, she has exercises and ways to use um, for, and some good music in there for either just left hand or just right hand as well. So. <laughs> so cute. Um, um. Hey, on your face. <laughs> A little cameo from Maestro. Yes. What is one thing, in your opinion, that um, every clown is should not forget um, to work on? I think I will quote my very first clarinet teacher: "Long tones, long tones, long tones." <laughs> um, they, I know, are not always the most exciting, but I think benefit so many aspects of our playing. Um, of course, air, tone, sound, um, embouchure, voicing, you know, that's so many areas of technique right there. Um, and there's so many different ways to do them and focus on different aspects of your playing. So like I mentioned, like I often tie this to what I'm working on. Um, so, um, a couple years ago I was playing Appalachian Spring and, um, I did a lot of long tones working on soft high notes, you know, or maybe I'm playing something really bombastic loud and I want to work on, on my dynamic range. Um, so long tones. And I will say on that, I think, I think one of the hardest things, I might even hesitate on any wind instrument, but I'll speak for the clarinet is to be able to do a really, really excellent, um, hairpin crescendo to be able to go from pianissimo to fortissimo back to pianissimo in good tone in good intonation um in you know keeping it even you know between those dynamics um being able to do that in different ranges it's so hard um but if you can do that then that unlocks so much music <laughs> um you've got fantastic control if you can do that really well especially if you can do that on like all notes so yeah work on your long tones don't don't neglect those Finally, yeah. what is um, one advice that you would give finally, to um, an upcoming musician? I think, sounds cheesy, but I would say be true to yourself um, and go after what you want. Don't be afraid to, for that to look different than your peers or your colleagues um, because really in today's world we talked a little bit about entrepreneurship but I think that's really I think all of us musicians have to be entrepreneurial um in our careers and at least to some degree and so the people that are really successful at that really take what's unique about them and work with it you know um so yeah don't shy away from you know if you're a sensitive person who loves working with little kids, you know, um, I think, um, there's a place for that. You know, I think I wasn't sure how I would tie my love for little kids, um, with being a clarinetist and being seen as professional and esteemed and, um, and cause there's often a stigma against that. You know, if you're the, the better you are, the older the students, the more advanced you work with. I don't think it's necessarily true. I think teaching beginners is the hardest thing um, that I do. And I also love working with little babies and toddlers. So that's part of my job that I do. And as doesn't really 
in some ways has to do with the clarinets. It always doesn't. Of course, I'm not giving them clarinets. Um, but I think I actually learn a lot um, about teaching um, from those little kids because they remind me to be really patient. Um, they remind me to be creative. <laughs> um, they also really challenge me to remind myself of how we all grow and develop. Um, and that really translates to how we learn. So yeah, just be yourself and um, don't be afraid to go after what you want or create what you want, even if it's not quote unquote what you've been taught as success or um, what you see everybody else doing. Um, that's what's going to be more interesting. And if you like it, you're going to enjoy your life more. So, yeah. 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 So thank you so much, Cindy, for um, yeah, so, spending the time to um, talk with me. Like we've been wanting to do that for a couple of months, I think. So we did it. <laughs> we did it. Thank you for having me. It's a blast. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> A huge thanks to Lindy again for agreeing to do this interview. If you want to learn more about their clarinet studio, you can check their website www.noxclarinetstudio.com or their Instagram page at noxclarinetstudio. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave a comment down below and a 5-star rating as it helps us to create more content for you. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll be back soon with another interview. Bye!